We're going to take a look at Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. If you have a Bible, open it up, please. Matthew's first book in the New Testament, chapter 11. So I'm going to set a little bit of context here before we jump into this passage. Somebody get me on a timer, because Ed told me I had as much time as I wanted today. So um, he basically gets to make the rules when pastor's gone. So Matthew uh, 11 is set in the context that Jesus has been traveling throughout the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, preaching the gospel, doing miracles, uh, the likes of which haven't ever been seen. And as he, as he goes around, he starts recruiting to himself the, the disciples, and he's been training them, and he's been showing them how they're going to go about ministering. But you have to remember, this is in the context of a nation that's been living under Roman occupation for a long time. So these guys have been, uh, they've had another country governing them, ruling them, and so they've been waiting with incredible anticipation for their Messiah, okay? So we know the Messiah to be a peaceful uh, man who came and sacrificed himself, but what they were waiting for in their minds was not only a political leader, but a military leader. They were waiting for a Messiah who would come with great political and military might and who would deliver them, who would take them into battle, against the Romans and conquer them and reestablish the Jewish people as its own state. So they had gotten all kinds of swallowed up into this political thinking, this political militaristic mindset. And they equated power in this age with political influence and military might. Now, we, don't, we can't relate to that at all in our culture. Um, but you'll see how closely these two things parallel as we go through this. Now, these guys were waiting for this political leader. He's going to come and he's going to lead him. So as this Jesus fellow starts traveling about, and before him this guy John that we're going to read about, he's calling everyone to repentance. The message was, here's healing, boom, now Repent. And they're following this guy around going, interesting, I'm not sure what to do with this. I'm not sure where to go with this. When's the battle call? When does he start training up soldiers? Because, I mean, he's training up apostles, but they're like junior rabbis. Like, when do the swords come out? When do we take over power? When are we going to be in charge again? When are we going to be the mightiest nation on earth again? Because Messiah is a son of David, and we remember David's stories as the mightiest king who's ever lived. When is he going to restore that glory, that power? So that's the context that this Jesus fella shows up in, and John shows up in right before him. So if you guys are familiar with the story, and I'm sure everyone is, but if you're not, John the Baptist was a radical. He was a wild man. He, he ate locusts and honey in the desert. He wore am, uh, camel's hair for his clothing. That was it. He consecrated himself 
He didn't drink. He didn't, he did nothing. He was the purest of the pure. Holy, right? Or boring, whatever. But no, he wasn't boring. He was wild. And he set himself in the desert and he, massive crowds would come out to this guy and listen to him preach. Now, remember, again, context. So we think massive crowds and we go, okay, it's going to fill Arrowhead Stadium. No. So this whole region where Jesus and John spent their ministry is tiny. It's like you, you don't even make it to like West Ishpeming before you run out of space. It's small. They were walking everywhere. The towns themselves had populations of like 500 to a big city was maybe three to 5,000. So they were spending their time in small rural areas. Okay, this wasn't a big urban metropolitan area. And it's, it's in this setting where John arrives on the scene and he's calling, he, he's out preaching and he's preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all of these people are coming out to hear his preaching and he's telling all of them to repent. And some of them do and some of them are baptized and others don't. So on his heels comes this fellow Jesus, whom you, I'm sure, remember. John announces with, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus has him baptize him. Remember this? And that launches Jesus into ministry where he starts going around and he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's done all kinds of crazy stuff and he's telling everyone to repent And now he's raised up for himself some apostles that he's going to start sending out to the cities. And now we have John get arrested and he's put in prison. And that's the stage for Matthew chapter 11. So I'll be done. And no, I'm kidding. Um, So Matthew 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on to there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Can you imagine this? This is John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you the one who is to come? Do you think John's really wondering if Jesus is the one? Come on. No way. John's in prison. He's afraid for his life. And he's wondering, this, doesn't quite, this isn't quite playing out in my head uh, the same way that I thought it would. It's not quite playing out in real life like I thought it would in my head. You know, I'm, I'm Isaiah 40. I'm the messenger in the wilderness, the one who goes before you, and, but I'm in prison. So, hey, cuz, let's help a brother out here and uh, maybe do something about this whole prison situation. Are you the one who is to come, or should I expect someone else? And in other words, Jesus, I'm in prison. I was the man for you. When are you going to get me out of here? It's incredible because so often we idealize in our minds that when a move of God happens, it's going to look a certain way. And it's going to look a certain way for us. God starts moving and, okay, all of my problems go away. 
all of normal life goes away. The world is suddenly redeemed, and we're all good to go. And John, whom Jesus will describe in just a moment, finds himself in prison, apparently completely against what he expected to find. And he's going, Jesus, um, I know who you are because I baptized you. When are you getting me out of here? Now, Jesus' response is remarkable. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the man who is not offended because of me. He says, John, everything that you expected to happen is happening. I am here. The lame are walking. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised up. And John, blessed is the man who's not offended because of me. This is one of the great charges to us who have the privilege of walking with God. It's the charge to live a life of unoffendability, a refusal to be offended. And that's what Jesus tells John here. John, everybody has the opportunity to choose to be offended by me. Everyone. Because I am going to offend everything in you that is not perfectly aligned with me and my kingdom. So John, the one who is most blessed, is not the one who gets freed from prison. The one who's most blessed is the one who refuses to be offended by me in any way for any reason. Live unoffended. This is a choice that each of us must make and we have to make it on the daily, right? I mean, when was the last time you had a day where everything went just swimmingly? Rarely, right? Every day you have to make a choice, a conscious decision. I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to get angry about this. I'm not going to become embittered about this. Because while my target might be another individual or another circumstance, my true target is my father, that I'm dissatisfied with what he's allowed to occur in my life, and I'm taking it out on him. Offense only ever creates distance between us and God. And we have the privilege of choosing to live without offense, which is usually the biggest separator between God and man for those who walk with God in the church. Once sin is removed, offense is the number two. As they went away, so now John's disciples, they have a message for John, right? Who, who's loving giving this role, right? John the Baptist, the radical, who looks at everyone, tells them to repent, you brood of vipers. And now you get to be the guy bringing back the message to John to be like, hey, John, guess what? You're stuck there and you can't be mad about it, right? Like, I mean, anyway, you guess that's my own personal little thing. But think about the worst person that you'd want to bring a bad news message to. You know, that's John. So as they're leaving, while they're still there, but they're leaving, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd. This is really cool. 
remember this crowd is the group that would have gone out and listened to John speak. This is the crowd. Many of them would have been baptized by John. And now Jesus has spent the last whatever amount of time walking through their towns. And he turns to them, and as, as John's followers are leaving, within earshot, he says, So what did you go out in the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing, they're in king's houses. So what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among them born of women, there has never arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John's disciples get to hear Jesus describe John to the crowd. How cool would that be, right? Jesus knows that those guys have to go give John a really bad message, really bad news, and I think he's kind of arming them with some pretty amazing news. John, listen, you're not going to like what I have to say to you, but Jesus just described you as the greatest man ever born of woman, so that kind of helps. Right? What is your situation in the sight of God? John's chafing because of his situation circumstantially. He's upset because of where he is circumstantially. He wants out of prison. He's been faithful. And Jesus is giving him something to lay hold of so that he's not offended. He's giving him an understanding of his circumstance in the sight of heaven. Where do you stand in the sight of God? And will you allow that position to govern your emotion rather than let your emotion govern your mind because of your position, your circumstance? John, you can't be offended. John, you're going to lose your head. But John... In the sight of God, you're the greatest man who's ever been born of woman. Come on. So the same passage, verse 7 through whatever I just read, was a message for both John and a message for the crowd. And the message for the crowd is this. It's really easy, especially in today's environment, but it's really easy to become a spectator of a move of God. It's really easy to go out into the wilderness to hear a prophet preach and be like, wow, I got to hear a prophet. That's pretty cool. Wow. And Jesus just described John as more than a prophet. He's the forerunner of whom Malachi spoke, would pre prepare the way of the Lord for the, the day of the Lord, for the Messiah's coming. Jesus goes, not only is John a prophet, he's the prophet. He's Elijah who was to come. This guy is the one that they've been writing about for generations. You are here and you get to see this guy? Come on. 
And it's so easy for us to go out into the wilderness to hear the prophet, to hear the forerunner preach and go, man, check that off on the bucket list. Let's go. I hope that Messiah guy shows up. He'd be fun to listen to as well. And then Jesus begins to turn. He begins to turn the message on the crowd. Because at this point, they think they're just there to listen to another great guy speak. And Jesus, he, he never gives you the opportunity to solely be a spectator or a bystander. He's going to force you to make a decision. That's who he is and it's what he does. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So he's setting the stage. This man is not just a prophet, which is mighty enough, but he is the prophet, the one who was prophesied of by Malachi to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus goes, this is him. This is him. And then he turns and he says this, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is proved right by her actions. Jesus turns to this crowd and he says to them, you have become spectators and critics rather than participants. You've been content to watch and listen to John as he preaches his message and he tells you of the coming kingdom. You've been content to listen to the Messiah, the one of whom John prophesied, and you've been willing to watch him and listen to him and see his miracles done in your city, and you criticize John because John's too holy, and you criticize the Messiah because he's not holy enough. Anytime there's a move of God... There's going to be something in us which must be put down. Something in us that wants to criticize the move of God because it's not the way we think it ought to be. Guys, every move of God is going to have foibles and flaws and be messy. Every great move of God throughout history has had mess attached to it. Some greater than others. Every time God has moved and you've seen thousands of people swept into the kingdom, those people come with their stuff. And I don't mean clothing and suitcases. I mean, we come in with all of our junk and we create messes. That's what we do because we're still broken. We're still in the process of being made whole. And when we're in this messy state, it's easy to look upon this move of God and go, that can't be God. Those guys are Jesus. This Jesus guy, he's, I mean, the, the whole water into wine thing, let's be honest. What is he about here? 
I mean, let's go. Like, you can't tell me. They've been drinking all day. They went through like four casks. You're going to make some more and it's the good stuff? What's this guy about? Drunk. Oh, there he is. He's at Matthew the tax collector's house. Look at that. Haven't seen beef like that on my table. Glutton. You begin to criticize. Well, I mean, the miracles, though. Well, the false miracles happen all the time. The dead are raised. Well, drunkard. A move of God exposes in us that which needs to be brought to the surface and removed, killed off, right? But we want to criticize the move of God because it allows us to stay where we are and how we are. It allows us to stay in our current situation. And Jesus says, this generation, and it's the same in our generation, we see the move of God and we look at the guy who looks like John and we go, He's too radical. He's too loud. His personality's too brash. He doesn't have any fun. He's always just so serious. Repent, repent, repent. What's the matter with this guy? Have a little fun. Not as much fun as Jesus, but a little bit more fun than you're having now, right? Criticize, we criticize. And the reason we do this is because we want to stay complacent. We want to stay the way that we are. And we don't want to have to change in the way he's going to force us to change. Guys, he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He accepts us in our condition, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. Ooh, I'm in good shape. So Jesus now goes on and he starts to... He starts to rebuke the cities that he's traveled through doing miracles. <laughs> oh man! So he tur- he turns into John the Baptist for a little minute here. You know, I like I know like everyone likes to think Jesus is like the happy, nice guy. He's always just smiling and hugging children and having wine with Matthew. And all of a sudden, here you see a little bit of fire in this guy's eyes. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They watched, they marveled, they talked about how amazing it was, but they refused to repent. Now before we get into this indictment, I'm going to tell you guys, what, what does repent mean? Do we know what repent means? So repent is the changing of one's mind about a certain thing that's then followed by the change of behavior or action. Okay, repentance is not an occasion. Repentance is not a season. Repentance is a lifestyle. It is a way of life. A broken and contrite or penitent heart you will not reject. Living in a repentant mode constantly. I would hug, but got away. Uh, Living repentant, living in a constant state of repentance is the way we're designed to live. It simply means that I'm in every day, in every circumstance, I'm 
giving myself the opportunity to change the way I think about God and man and then change my behavior to follow suit. Repentance is us in our minds becoming more like God in the way he thinks and then our behavior following and becoming more like Jesus in the way that we live. That's what repentance is. We often think that repentance is what we did the day we got saved. And it was. The first time. We ought to be repenting daily. Almost minute by minute and hour by hour as God continuously reveals himself to us. So he looks at this crowd and he says to them, you've seen These things happen, and yet you did not repent. Now listen to this. This is amazing. Woe to you, and excuse the pronunciations, because whatever. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Those are Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon. Chorazin and Bethsaida were cities that Jesus and likely John both preached to. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities that the Jewish people wanted to see judged, destroyed by God. So he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the mighty works done in you had been done in those Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Guys, we all know Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You guys know Sodom and Gomorrah? The most wicked city that's ever been, right? Judge, fire, destruction. And here we have the Jewish people looking at, looking at Jesus. They're witnessing Jesus. They're living through the era of John. And they refuse to repent, change the way they think, and change the way they behave to draw near to God. And Jesus says to them, if the works that I did in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Easier on the day of judgment will it be for them than it'll be for you. What an indictment. Why did they miss it? Because they were comfortable as spectators and they wanted to criticize rather than repent. Now, this is an interesting transition again. And I ended up in Matthew 11 because I was trying to find the passage where Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is where it shows up. This is the weirdest thing. At that time, and now this, this could have been like a, it maybe took a little five-minute break and then he came back after a little drink of water. Um, this is a good idea. And so at that time, Jesus declares... Break temps. Got me dried out a little bit. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these little things or these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
All the things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think what Jesus is drilling into to here is, I think he recognizes that part of the reason that people aren't repenting is they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They have Pharisees and Sadducees and these scribes going around, and they're giving them all this crazy law that they have to follow. Okay, so if a woman is having her time of the month and she sits on a chair, you may not sit on that. That chair has to be ceremoniously cleansed outside the city. And like, there's all of these little tiny rules and law that you have to follow and that that have been created in this environment. And I think when John comes along and he's like, repent, turn, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're like, to who? What do we do? Like, I can't sit there because she was there. And now I go over here and oh my goodness, there's a lady. I have to look the other way and I don't know what to do. And I think Jesus is giving them an opportunity, a window for those who are truly violent in the spirit. They, they want to lay hold of the kingdom of God. And he's giving them an opportunity to say, I, I am what you turn to. You turn not to another course of action. You turn not to another law. You turn not to another set of rules. You turn to me. I was thinking about this this morning because Jesus starts this transition by talking about that it was revealed to little children. And I was thinking about this. So I have, I have five kids, so it's, I'm a fairly good case study. And so, you know, sometimes you test different things out on your kids just to see how it goes. You know, they, like therapy's great these days. 20 years down the road, we'll pay for it, whatever. But, and, you know, maybe you shock them or you surprise them a little bit, you know, and just see how they respond. Well, have you ever, um, like, had a little kid around? Um, so I did this yesterday with my, like, she's almost three. She's little, and she was chasing me around the house with a plastic gun, like, click, 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 trying to shoot me. And I'm running around the house, and I got out in front of her far enough so I could climb behind the bed and lay there in wait. <laughs> and she came around the corner, and I was like, Rah! and she screamed and jumped in terror. And as she screamed and jumped in shock, she immediately ran to me to cling to me. And I was like, oh, I get it. John comes with this shock and awe message. Repent, you wicked sinners. Jesus comes showing the good news of healing that's being brought to the sick. Good news preached to the poor, the dead being raised. And they are both calling out, repent. And you can almost see people being like, to who? And now Jesus comes and he says, you turn to me and you turn to the Father. Draw near to me. Listen to what he says here. This is remarkable. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
you're working, you're laboring trying to satisfy God. You're working, you're, you're giving it everything you have to try to live up to the law. Come to me. Come to me. You're burdened by your sin and your shame. You're burdened by all of the things that you've done that you know better than doing and yet you keep doing it. Oh, that's you? Come to me. You who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is telling them, "Listen, if you just come to me, you're going to find out how gentle, how meek I am. I'm going to let you learn from me. I'm going to let you walk with me. I'm going to teach you explain myself to you and give you the opportunity to know me so that your burden can be lifted and you can find acceptance, not because of how glorious you are, but you can find acceptance because of the way that I am. The message of repentance is a message of shock and awe. It jars the system, and it should because it's designed to rouse us from our complacency, to wake us from just how content we've become with the way that we are. And repentance is intended to propel us into the presence of the Father so that we can sit with him, learn from him, and find him to be lowly, meek, and gentle of heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when you wrap this all back around, you have this this incredible scenario where Jesus is explaining to the crowds how to respond to the conviction that we feel when a message of repentance is let forth. Sometimes a message of repentance says, you're a sinner. Repent. That can be jarring. It can be shocking unless you recognize that the one that we run to is meek and lowly of heart. He recognizes us for the way that we are. He welcomes us the way that we are. And then in repentance, he begins to transform us to live and look like he does. When Jesus comes on the scene and he begins and his message is the good news of the gospel and he's healing the sick and he's raising the dead and the blind are seeing and the deaf are being raised, people naturally want to just watch. I mean, look at our environment now. How conducive is our Christian environment to just being a participant? I show up every week. Church was good. How's church? That was good. You know, it was good. Worship was amazing. Wow, they got some talented people over there. And I leave unchanged. I had an experience, but it wasn't God. It was emotional. It was something that caused me to go, hmm, this was cool. It was really neat. Wow, there's some good points there. I'll have to think about that. How did you change? It was church. It wasn't the gym. (laughs) Guys, in this environment, it's really easy to become familiar with the presence of God working in your midst. And I think some of what Jesus is addressing is 
culture's familiarity with these incredible, mighty works of God. They were watching these things happen, and they became familiar rather than inspired and propelled to action, to repentance. One of the great privileges that this church has is that the presence of God has been here for a long time now. And I was gone for about three years, and I went to a lot of other churches in that time. And they're really dry. And I don't say that with any shame. I'm not telling you who they are. But they were dry. They were talking a lot of theology. But you weren't encountering God in those places. And coming back, for me, I have a little bit of an advantage because it's fresh again for me. But I can't walk in here without meeting with God. Which is an incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility. Because if I meet with God and I leave without changing, without repenting, my heart begins to become hard and I start to become a spectator. And pretty soon I'm on the receiving end of Jesus' rebuke. So the great privilege that we have here comes with a great responsibility that as I encounter God and as I see him working in the lives of others and even feel him working in my own heart and mind, I have a responsibility, an obligation even, to respond in repentance and say, God, change me. Change the way that I think about you. Change the way that I think about me. Change the way that I think about my friends. And then have our behavior must follow what we change up here. If our actions don't change, we're not truly repenting, we're just believing. So I'm going to wrap it up. We're going to break. I think we go into prayer now, right? Um, so I'm going to ask you guys to break into groups of prayer, like is the habit here. And I'm going to ask you to get a little weird. I mean, weirder even than we normally are here. Um, so if there's someone without sin here, could you raise your hand real quick? Brent. We're waiting. <laughs> Repentance is not only an individual thing, it's a community thing. And I mean that in the sense that we can help one another repent in our thinking about God and in our actions that are ungodly. And so as you gather in groups, I'm going to ask you to get weird, find someone you trust, and share with them an area of your thinking or your action that you need to repent for. And ask them to pray for you that you'd have grace. Mercy forgives, but grace empowers you to change. We know we have mercy as embodied in the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. We know there's no penalty for us who repent. But grace is what we receive when we ask for it that gives us the power to change. And that comes only by the Spirit of God. So as we break into groups and pray, I'm going to ask you just to share something. If, if you feel uncomfortable doing it with anyone but your spouse or your closest friend, that's fine. But do it. And ask them to pray for you 
for grace that God would begin the process of changing you so that in a year you can look back and say, wow, I used to be bound by this thing, and I've been free for eight months. So, Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you meet us here week in and week out, longing to encounter us, longing for us to open ourselves to you and say, know me, Father, fully know me. We thank you for mercy that you welcome us in our current state, and we ask you for grace to overcome that which binds us today. Father, thank you for each one here that you are speaking to each of them individually and you have something for each of them individually today. So as we gather and we pray together and we trust ourselves to you and to each other, I ask you to move sovereignly and powerfully and touch hearts and change minds. We love you. Amen. So one more thing on this, uh, this childlikeness, like children... God's looking for a violent people who are not willing to be pushed away or walk away without a touch from him. And I think a good thing to implement in our lives is that I'm I'm not willing to come near to the presence of God where he's right here and I'm on the fringe without forcing my way in. I'm going to lay hold of him like a child brushing his face and I'm going to get hold of him, and I'm going to have a touch from him. To live with that kind of undeniability, that kind of hunger is what God's trying to develop in us. So in repentance, don't just change behavior. Draw near to him and be encountered by him. Be known by him that you can experience and speak of his love as something that's touched you and changed you forever. So, Father, thank you for your presence, that you are willing to know us and make yourself known to us in an experiential way, in a knowable, tangible way. There's no one that you will push away that refuses to be pushed away. Give us a violence to draw near to you, Father, like children rushing into your presence. Father, as we go out into our fields of ministry, may your power rest upon each one. May your presence be like an aroma as we walk through the streets that our character, our love, our joy would be recognized as you. May we be fruitful in our places of ministry. And may you be known here in our city. We love you, Father. Amen.